Welcome to the Play On Podcast. I'm Josh Stavros, filling in for host Nano Taggart, launching our first episode kicking off the 2015 summer season of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. We will now be publishing new episodes every week through October, interviewing directors, actors, designers, and more, so you can get more of an inside look into the plays that you'll be seeing here in Cedar City in the coming months. Today we have David Ivers, director of Charlie's Aunt and co-artistic director of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. David is also part of the acting company, appearing as Antonio Salieri in Amadeus. As an actor, David has been in over 40 productions through 18 seasons here at the festival, including recent title roles in Richard II and Scapan. His directing credits here at the festival include last year's Twelfth Night, Twelve Angry Men, Romeo and Juliet, Cyrano de Bergerac, and the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged. He was also in Charlie's Aunt the last time we produced it in the 1990s. We are here today with uh, Festival Artistic Director David Ivers, uh, and we're excited to talk about Charlie's Aunt specifically. David's directing this summer. Uh, Charlie's Aunt. Charlie's Aunt, excuse me. It's an English play. (laughs) Actually, that's one of the first things I wanted to talk about is this is one of the very few plays that's not Shakespeare that the festival has done twice. uh, Well, we've done it once. Yes. We're about to do it. We're about to do it for a second time. (laughs) I'm I'm extremely literal today. (laughs) I have to be on my toes. So can you talk a little bit about your process artistically working with uh, Brian Vaughn and Scott Phillips in selecting this play uh, for its second uh, run at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Uh, I can, yeah. Actually, Scott really isn't quite in the picture in terms of play selection until later in the process when we run by him, you know, a whole bunch of titles. Sure. And, um, you know, Charlie's Aunt didn't come up early in the selection process for 2015. As I remember, um, Brian brought it back on the table late in the process because we were looking for some title drivers, you know, or some some lighter fare because we're always trying to balance the season in terms of comedy, tragedy, history. Mm-hmm. And the Randall really needs that good comic, family-friendly kind of piece of programming in it. And so Brian brought it back, and I actually was uh, not for it in all transparency. I said, you know, we've done it before. Uh, it was almost 20 years ago, and I think I, w- I was feeling like, oh, you know, we were in it. Does it look? What does it? What does this say? And uh, so I went off and thought about it, and I still felt sort of, eh. and then I read it again, and I had to kind of eat crow because when I came back, my perspective on it as a memory had changed uh, in in almost 20 years. Of course, the, my identification. And who I identified with the play, which so often happens with great plays, that as your life uh, progresses, so does the lens with which you see plays and and the characters that you relate to change, you know. And all of a sudden, I found so much optimism in the play that I was not aware of when I was in my twenties acting in it, because I was living optimism in a sort of way, <laughs> you know. And I found this wonderful whimsy. Uh, inside of just something I appreciate so much more now, which is the well-made play. Structurally, it's such a sound, uh, classic comedy. Ironically, and you're probably going to ask this anyway, you know, Brandon Thomas isn't known for <laughs> anything really yeah. but Charlie's yeah. on. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, in my researching at this time, because in my 20s when I was playing Jack and it, I didn't do any research. You know? <laughs> I came to my rehearsal. My research was being in love. Yeah, exactly. I came to rehearsal and had a great time and listened to our director and sometimes didn't listen to the director <laughs> and, you know. So, so essentially, this time when I was researching and I found out that Brandon Thomas was actually commissioned to write this play, which was really amazing to me by this sort of almost amateur theatrical club. Uh, and so now some things in it, like Fanny Babb saying, uh, I, I'm going off to do some amateur theatricals, you know, sort of there's a context for that. And I, uh, I find the play to be infinitely, now I can use the word because I'm older, more charming than I ever did before when I was just inside of it. And so because of that, I actually leaned forward in the process to say, you know, I, I'd actually like to direct this. Um, I sort of alternate years between finding plays here that I can look at through a new lens, which I've done with the Shakespeare I've directed, and then plays that I think are, forgive the term because it's not entirely fair, but sort of war horses, great, well-made plays, 12 Angry Men, Charlie's Not One of Them is one of them, so that I can exercise the other muscles of director, which is really honoring what's there, sure. not reinventing it, finding a way to be disciplined inside of the existing parameters that the, the script tells us work. And so you'll get a really traditional, stunning period production that I hope is funny. Please, please be funny. <laughs> so coming back to that idea of honoring that that great form, why do you think a play like this doesn't lend itself to reinvention? Why do, what is it about that structure or about this style that, that deserves that just open book honoring? Well, I, I think so, something about the, you know, that, that optimism met with innocence. The optimism in the play has to spring out of a certain set of innocence. And so innocence, unfortunately, in some ways, is connected to nostalgia now. It's connected to a, a period that is behind us, I feel. It's very hard to pick it out of anything on TV. It's very hard to, you know, you can pick it out of the Smith's Hallmark card section uh, if you if you read a lot of the Hallmark cards while you're in Smith's. You know, but, but something about nostalgia. And now with Shakespeare, right, master dramatist who's dealing with hardcore issues you know so many of them at the same time that lens i i feel can be reinvented not all the time sure but, and so be, because of what's centrally happening in this play which one of the major issues is we cannot be in the presence of these young girls ladies that we think we're in love with unless there's a chaperone and if you try to reinvent that construction the play is doomed we just don't. Yeah, know, that's, we have not, there's, there's no sort of modern equivalent. Yeah, yeah, and uh, for as much as I'm, for as much as I be believe in, it's not that I believe in reinvention. I believe in examination, you know. And I want to be bold when it's appropriate. Sometimes when it's not appropriate. <laughs> um, I also am a romantic at heart. Uh, I care a lot about the past. I care about history. Uh, and I care about uh, how we're nostalgic. Uh, that's why I love some music so much in my productions, you know. And there will be that in this production, which is great. Not a live band, but but th there is musicality in, in uh -huh. the play, and we're going to heighten that. So, so and for people who haven't uh, seen the show before, read the show before, we've got lots of information on our website about Charlie's Aunt, but can you give just a brief, tiny setup of basic characters and what, what sort of sets up the action of Charlie's on? Boys meet girls. Boys get girls. Boys lose girls. 
Boys, cats, girls. Something like that. No. <laughs> so basically, you know, we're in like uh, late 1800s, 1893 or so in England at like, you know, Oxford University in the flat of Jack Chesney and uh, his his pal, uh, Charlie Wickham, um, are finishing university, basically. And they've invited these two girls over that they love him. They love and they want to tell them all about their love. Um, and uh, they've invited them to lunch and they can come to lunch because Charlie's aunt is paying a visit and so there's a chaperone. And essentially we find out that Charlie's aunt is going to be late and the girls show up and they have to leave because there's no chaperone. And in the midst of that, another schoolmate named Fancourt Baberly shows up uh, to Jack's apartment uh, and he happens to have with him, fortunately, unbelievably, a dress <laughs> and a wig. And what happens deep into the first act is these boys, Jack and Charlie, convince Fancourt Baberly, as we call him Fanny or Babs in the script, to dress up as Charlie's aunt. From the, there... No, I, no, that's, yeah. all I, that's all I want. And all from I can there, say that is if you and have suit. to ask, <laughs> you should not see this show. Uh, from there, it's pretty clear. What and and the great, possibly go wrong? The great thing about it is, to be honest... You know, it's tea and doilies and great music and terrific design, family-friendly, hilarious, British. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of built for for the Randall Theater and and for the Utah Shakespeare Festival. So come come join us. You've directed lots of different kind of things, and you've obviously acted in lots of different kinds of shows. Can you talk generally about what to look forward to as a director when you're looking at? at a farce when you're looking at this kind of comedy is there is there a gear shift in your mind when you approach a farce that's a great well-informed question well done josh do you work here thanks i do are you the associate education director why yes i am it's a very informed question <laughs> um the short answer is yes th th there is a gear shift but ironically uh it's not emotional and it's not as enticing as it, it might appear to be when i look at a script as a director as a farce and as an actor which i've done a lot of it i see math <laughs> and that's going to sound odd but but really I, I i kind of have to i have like an intake of oh my gosh here we go uh, and i say that because it, the virtuosity and the discipline and the mathematical equation of putting farce together is like a different kind of discipline, uh, not unlike dance or fight choreography. You, you have to you have to know how the math adds up. You have to put the lines together to form a picture, and then you have to erase all of it. You have to erase the lines. You have to erase the math, and these actors have to look like they're tripping over furniture for the first time in their life. It's never happened before, and so in order to achieve the rehearsed spontaneity or the relaxed readiness, as I call it, um, we got to work backwards and do all the math. we got to break apart all this stuff. Okay, we know here you're pouring tea into a top hat. But we don't just, you know, <laughs> there's a, okay, we got to make sure the audience knows that there's tea in this teapot. So first we have to pour tea in cups. That's highly choreographed. Now we've told the audience, oh, that's tea, and it's in cups. Then we have to figure out how the, you know, yeah. Do that for 163 pages. 
in like, you know, 16 hours a week of rehearsal. And that is a recipe for chest pain. <laughs> uh, no. So, so the, the form is different. Now, the great part about Forrest, of course, is that it elicits laughter. It's also the, it's also where you panic because as a director, about three weeks into the room, as you well know, it's not funny anymore to yeah, us. Yeah. So we're sitting there going, you're just doing my career that, is over. At that point, you're just doing math. Yeah. There comes a point when you see actors, it's not unlike music composition. You know, I play, you play scales, you're working really hard on a, on a piece by, I don't know, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And, um, and you know, it's like agony. And then there's a day after the scales and after working on that piece, or even a, even 10, 12 measures, where muscle memory starts to make sense, and your fingers move in a way that you and you start to you start to move from technical proficiency, understanding the math, to the math erasing, and now you can process. And and farce, frankly, for me, is a lot like that. The only other really big question I have is. Uh, and you've you've kind of answered it a little. So if it if it feels like retread, you you have a different approach. Obviously, working a script as an actor versus working it as a director. Were you concerned at all coming in that it's that you were going to be locked into the mode of Jack? That you were that your past experience with this particular production at this particular theater was going to work against you? Uh huh. Still am. Formidable experience for me being in that in that production because it cemented a lot of things for me here. You know, it was a few seasons into my life here. I think that season between, you know, that show and Twelfth Night, which I directed last year, you know, there were things that, that I think formed a relationship here at the festival that was mutually beneficial. And I formed, you know, it was a couple of years into a very deep and long-lasting friendship with Brian and others that are in the company. Yeah, I mean, Brian and I still joke about it. We still can say lines, you know, the way we said them in our <laughs> office, you know. So there are some things that are hard to get away from. And, and I, I look, I'm certainly going to borrow from the notion of that's part of the warhorse mm-hmm. analogy. Yeah. You know, it's like certainly going to borrow part of the spirit of what we did because it worked. I don't remember tiny details, but I have washes of, of inflections and sounds. And, you know, Brian remembers some stuff. I think more deeply in some ways than I do. I couldn't remember the name of the songs, you know, uh-huh. and stuff like that. And he has. And but yeah, it's always interesting to revisit something. Sure. And it's always interesting to revisit something that you, that people somehow ha- have our audiences or other people have great memories of. And it stacks a kind of pressure that is probably of my own making. But well, it's it's funny you say that because it, it's actually the first show I ever saw in the Randy oh, Jones no. Theater when I Thank was in you. high school. You're welcome. Uh, oh, in high school, no less. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I I have very vivid memories. I can remember what seat I was sitting, and I remember I had seen good theater before, but never really professional theater. And you talk about being formative for you in terms of cementing things in your in your mind with this company. And speaking personally, it did the exact same thing to me from a whole different perspective. Moving from outside of Cedar City, coming here and seeing. For the really for the first time, what this place had to offer. Well, <laughs> the uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, I think you did tell me that once. That's nice. Yeah, it's uh, you did enjoy it, right? I did enjoy okay, it uh, quite good. a bit. Uh, I remember you that teapot res- in that you hat. You had great respect for for what was happening on the stage. I did. It was very and serious. What's happened and since then? <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Now I'm going to have you come sit in that seat again. We'll get. We should reserve that seat for you for opening I night. It. I kind of want to be there. But I'll put a camera on you. <laughs> well, and for our listeners who weren't 
here or who haven't been coming necessarily since the mid 90s or late 90s excuse me it, you know Brian Vaughn and David Ivers acted opposite each other in this in this comedy and it was directed by Russ Trays was it no Steve Rothman Steve Rothman whose favorite thing to say which Brian will remember too at the beginning of every rehearsal was hello boys show me the funny <laughs> <laughs> I hope he listens to this because literally every day, and it, it must have been right when Jerry Maguire, you know, uh-huh. showed me the money, like had come out because I, probably it was 95? Yeah. 90, 96, I think. 96 or 97. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then the, the, the Charlie's Night was in 97. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Is Jerry Maguire that old? <laughs> I know, right? Indeed. Okay. Uh, so the only other question I have, uh, I heard once a quote about farce that's saying the f- farce is a comedy that somebody writes about the worst day of your life. True or false? Uh, false, I think. Yeah, I, I, because well, it just depends on, on whose point of view that, that is, right? Because none of these characters can ever assume that it's the worst day of their life or else there's no hope. Yeah. Right? You know, for me, it's all about obstacle, no problem. Obstacle, no problem. Problem. We'll get over, you know, we'll figure (laughs) out a solution. We'll figure out a solution while we're smiling. So for you, the overriding feeling in these shows is an intense feeling of hope and optimism and an overriding sense of I have to get what I want. I have to get this thing I have to overcome. Yeah, there's a little bit of ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, you know. Yeah, some of which in, in obstacles of their own making. Yeah, I mean, extraordinary people in ordinary circumstances, you know. Yeah. I don't know if that's that has any drama in no. it. How do you illuminate yeah. their extraordinary abilities? Superman washes his eating? car. Yeah, exactly. Well, that would be cool. <laughs> if it was kryptonite soap. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, but I think um, I think we have to think out here in the audience, wow, that's a bad day. You know, how are they going to get over this? But the thing about farce is we, we're smiling while we're – and there's pathos involved even in – Someone like having their their head slammed in a door, we can laugh at it because we we have an understanding that they're they're trying to achieve something and and probably they will, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I I think the construct of the world isn't one ever that this is going to end horribly, for real. I think if we go into a farce and a comedy knowing we have a set of rules, yeah, uh, and so. I think as a director, we want to stack the deck, which we call it. So we want those obstacles to appear to be insurmountable. We, we want to know when those girls show up and there's no chaperone, that they that these kids have got to figure out something on the 13th page or 22nd page of this script that is unbelievable in a moment that's going to solve this problem. And actually, they don't, and the girls leave. And then they get a little space to go, what have we done, you know? <laughs> And they have to they have to figure out what the next step is, you know. Um, and so w- what we want to do is put that all inside of a pressure cooker in that little quick moment, so the audience isn't ahead of it. The audience doesn't have time to think, "Oh, this is going to be a happy ending." We're so involved that, like all the good films you've seen that deal with those kinds of comedy, or even like you know Rocky, you know we're 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 not we're not paying to see Rocky lose. You know, we're, we're, we're paying to see the, the journey yeah. or win, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's about it's about creating a world in which everyone's present in the exact same moment. Actors, audience, everybody. Yeah. Not pe- thinking ahead, not feeling ahead. The people just that, right that are behind, like in Charlie's On, are like the uncle who walks into chaos and had no idea. And that's why he's so angry, you know. And then they have to solve that. And then, you know, we get to take out our perspective on who we, as an audience, who our allies are. So we enjoy the bad uncle the way that Jack and Charlie enjoy the bad uncle, which is you're a pain in my butt. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Stop ruining the fun. <laughs> David Ivers, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we're, can't, we can't wait to see the mathematical magic of Charlie's aunt this oh, summer at the thanks. Utah Shakespeare Festival. You guys are awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Remember, we will be publishing new episodes of the Play On podcast with directors, actors, and designers every week through the summer and fall seasons here at the festival. If you have any burning questions that you'd like us to ask any director or actor from this season, please make a request by tweeting us at playonutshakes or email podcast at bard.org. Your question could make it on the podcast. Catch you all next week. <laughs>